Mo Gibson starts shooting the sequel to The Passion of the Christ this spring, reminding us of how much the world has changed since the original came out. We'll look at that as we see Lizzo, who is supersizing art in the present, and we'll see a article by the Christian Post that shows that Christians are going to church less than they ever have in the present. And finally, we'll look at a Catholic hospital that is being forced to perform gender-affirming care against its will by the government. My, how things have changed. And not for the better, but we'll see if we can do something about that as we look at those stories and more today on Indie Thinker. Today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Element Home Loans. Now, I know what you were thinking to yourself, and you probably said to yourself, Self, I can't purchase a home. Interest rates are way too high. And you might have been correct. They were high, but uh, I've got good news, and hopefully I can plant a new seed in your head so that you'll stop talking to yourself. Maybe that's a New Year's resolution you need to make. And that thought is this, is that interest rates are going back down. And it's projected that by March, we'll be back down to the fives, and that's close to pre-pandemic levels. So now is a great time to go ahead and get pre-approved for a home loan so that you can lock in a great rate and at least start your home shopping, knowing what kind of buying power you have. And I can't think of a better company on the planet than Element Home Loans to help you in that endeavor. Not only are they going to give you great customer service, but they're going to deal with you honestly. No gimmicks, no tricks, just straight up good customer service. So you need to go to Kevin Blair Team dot com right now to see how they can help you and to get pre-qualified for a home. And when you do so, let them know that Indie Thinker sent you. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Today, we are taking a walk down memory lane, and we're going to perform a little bit of nostalgia, knowing that nostalgia is somewhat flawed because we are older now and only thinking back on times that we might not totally remember, for those of you who are having memory issues already. And of course, we not only might not remember certain things, but we have kind of selective memory. So we can look back and we can idolize times gone by, and we can do so without having all of the facts or at least embellishing some of those facts. But yet it's also important to remember the past because of the age-old saying that you should remember the past or you'll be destined to repeat it. So I want to take us down a a walk down memory lane all the way back to 2004, almost 20 years ago, when The Passion of the Christ first came out. If you can remember that far back, uh, depending upon how old you are, it was a splendid time. Ryan Seacrest just took over for Casey Kasem and was the face and the voice of America, according to some people, not me. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, just won Best Film, and the RMS Queen Mary II, oh, that beautiful ship, made its maiden voyage. Those were the days. However, maybe one of the biggest events, or at least the lack thereof of an event, is something that's important to note, and this is found in Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And in that book, he reminds us of something pivotal that took place in the early 2010s. It was that in 2004, people slowly but surely all were starting to get cellular devices, but there was one major thing lacking from those cellular devices, and that is that social media had yet to come on them. And so Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and God forbid TikTok, um, they were not on mobile devices all the way back in 2004 and wouldn't get on mobile devices until the 2010s-ish. But 
there's some things, according to Jonathan Haidt and some research that's done by other people, that started to change as a result of social media going onto mobile devices. And one of those things is that suicide rates begin to skyrocket for some odd reason, around the same time that social media found its way to mobile devices. Now, Jonathan Haidt's book goes into much more detail about many more things other than the advent of social media on mobile devices. However, I think it's an important thing that we need to remind ourselves of how much this event has changed things. The culmination of social media on mobile devices didn't just give us something to do with our idle thumbs. It made us much more introverted and inwardly focused and kept us inside and kept us staring at our phones. And there's no amount of researching and looking at that that could overestimate how seminal that moment was for us as a society and how much of an impact it made on us as a society. And so Haidt's argument is that we have become more inwardly focused, more bubble wrapped, and more coddled in our present as a result of things like social media that have caused us to escape from the outside real world. So as we look towards Mel Gibson and the creation of the sequel to The Passion, one can't help but hope that we might return to a time gone by, to a time before social media had inundated the landscape, creating a sense of reality for everybody that is curated based upon the number of likes you get get based upon a post. Now, I hope I don't need to remind you that uh, whether or not your post gets liked, it does not necess- necessarily create the kind of epistemic or ontological quality with your post. And those are a bunch of big philosophical words that simply just mean this. It doesn't matter how many people like your damn post. It, 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 that doesn't judge the quality of it. So let me remind you that the post that has the greatest amount of likes ever in the history of posts on Instagram is a picture of a farm fresh egg. That's right. Kylie Jenner's butt is a close second but the number one most liked picture on social media ever is a picture of an egg. So as we see, if we get our understanding of what is truly good and likable based upon what happens on social media, we will get a very flawed impression of what is actually valuable in the real world. But as we continue to turn virtually, we're plugging back into the matrix instead of plugging out of it, and it is warping our understanding of reality. And again, Maybe the passion of the Christ is just one of the tools that can help us remember what life used to be like before social media, what life used to be like before we were so tuned in to our phones. Now, obviously, I'm just using this film because it's just a film at the end of the day as a kind of illustration for why we may need to investigate how things used to be in the past. But I am really excited about this film, and I can't wait to see it. And here's just a little glimpse of what the sequel to The Passion may actually look like and what story it may tell, because you might make the mistaken impression of thinking, well, three days in a tomb, Jesus raises from the dead, boom, and we all know the story. However, uh, Mel Gibson has the flair for storytelling, and the story might easily be underestimated because there's certainly more to it. So I want to show you this clip where Mel Gibson discusses with Stephen Colbert what is going to be in the sequel. Now, I'll go ahead and give you a disclaimer before you watch this. This is the most interesting thing that has been on The Late Show with Colbert since it started. So please don't ever go 
to The Colbert Show expecting you'll find quality content like this, um, again, because it hasn't happened before or hasn't happened since. But here's Mel Gibson on The Colbert Show talking about The Passion of the Christ. I hear, yeah. but it, it probably hasn't started yet, called The Resurrection. It's a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Is that true? It's probably about three years off because it's a big subject. Yeah, yeah, I've read the book. Yeah. <laughs> I know how it ends. I know yeah. how it ends. You know how well, it begins. Yeah. Well, um, uh, how do you tell the story of the resurrection? Because it's, it's, it, there's not as much, and I, I don't mean this to say this in a flippant way, yes. but there isn't action. I mean, we, every Good Friday, we act out the passion. You know the story. Yes, sure. You know the parts. You know, you're waiting for you know, you know, various people to come on. But how do you tell the story of the resurrection? It's, it's a single event and then a revelation to the people in the upper room. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's more than a single event. It's an amazing event. And to underpin that with the things that around it is really the story to sort of enlighten what that means. Uh -huh. And it's not just about the event. It's not some kind of chronological telling of just that event. Mm -hmm. That could be boring, and you think, well, we read that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it'd be boring. I mean, no, God be. becomes man and rises from the dead. Well, Never be... going to be a snoozer. No, no. Okay. <laughs> but it's predictable in that, okay, now we know what happens, and this yeah. happens, and this happens, and this happens. But what are the other things around it that happen? Uh-huh. That, Who's that the bad guy? Is it Thomas? Who doubts that Christ is risen? No. No? No bad guys? Well, there are. Yeah? They're in another realm. Oh. Yeah. Another realm. Sure, you're going all over the place. What happened in three days? Oh, uh, he descended into hell, uh, rose from the dead. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Tore the gates of Dis off their iron hinges. That's sure, true. yeah, exactly. That stuff. Wow, so you would actually do a little uh, inferno? I'm not sure, but it's worth thinking about, isn't it? So as you can tell, I think this is going to be a very interesting sequel to The Passion, and I can't wait to see what Mel Gibson does with this story. If it's anything like the first one, it's going to be life-changing, but don't consult Rotten Tomatoes for that, because, of course, they have an invested interest to absolutely lie to you. But but I'm not interested just because the first, the, 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 the Passion was great and, and the sequel is inevitably probably going to be as well. But I'm not just excited about the film itself. I'm excited about films like it and other things that will call us back to a time gone by because of how messed up our culture really is. I can only hope that films like this and other things, and maybe people like myself, hopefully, will illustrate the importance of biblical virtues and the stories that are found there so that our society will know that they can come to this wellspring of life in the midst of a progressive movement and a postmodern movement that is absolutely destroying society. See, I think the backlash is coming. I think people are going to get sick and tired of leftism. They're going to get sick and tired of progressivism. They're going to get sick and tired of the lies of postmodernism. And people are going to start searching for truth elsewhere since they couldn't find it in any of those things. And it's my hope that as people get sick and tired of the garbage dump of progressivism, that they will then start searching in the truths found in Christianity and the truths found in the Bible. And maybe this film comes at a perfect time, just in time, to rescue those who have been digging in the garbage dump of society and are longing for something more. That's the hope anyway. So here's why we need to reacquaint ourselves. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. Purposelessness is abounding, and people are trying to search for it in the most ridiculous places. Um, there's also people who are scaring the daylights out of especially a young group of people 
with with climate concerns that that young people really can't do anything about. All of this is a recipe for frustration and worse. So maybe, just maybe, the passion will bring us back to a time gone by and to a God we said goodbye to, because as we'll see in our top stories today, we desperately need to reacquaint ourselves with him. In Christianity Not Today, I look at things that are not so Christian today and try to provide a prescription for those things as we turn our eyes away from the Passion of the Christ and look at art. We'll see how art has begun to take shape in a postmodern setting, and perhaps there's many places that you could look for that, including the Wexler Building on Ohio State University, as uh, it is supposedly the premier uh, postmodern version of architecture with staircases that lead to nowhere and doors that open to nothing and all sorts of ridiculous games like that. Um, it's, it's no wonder that postmodernism has had such effect, uh, an effect on art and our personal lives because now people are finding themselves wandering and headed nowhere in, in life. And as we look at art, I think of no better place to go than to the premier artist of our time and the premier picturesque version of postmodern beauty, Lizzo. Just recently, Lizzo reminded us and informed us as one of the great intellects of our age that cancel culture is appropriation. It's become trendy, misused, and misdirected, according to Yahoo Entertainment. Now, before we actually dig into the article, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you the picture that Yahoo uses that um, exposes basically everything you never wanted to see on Lizzo before. And the only reason I bring this up is because I want to make a, a quick statement about, about beauty. Um, because this picture is obviously not an example of that whatsoever. Now, we could talk about the vanity of beauty and the vanity of beauty culture and all those kind of things and about the fleeting nature of physical beauty. However, there is something to be said about the objective nature of beauty. And again, this picture is not it. Uh, there is an objective nature to it, which is why the vast majority of pop stars in the past or singers in the past have been incredibly talented vocalists. Lizzo was one of those, by the way. She's a very talented musician. She just consistently wishes to, tr to trot around wearing as little as possible being morbidly obese, which is not beautiful. See, we've slowly but surely started to tell people in society today that we can value that which is not beautiful because we can redefine beauty by our own standards. Now, the problem with this is that when you say something is beautiful, that is grotesque, it is dangerous. See, it's not, suicide isn't beautiful as many artists and painters and so on and so forth in the past have tried to make it so. Those poets or whoever who committed suicide and tried to make us think that death could be beautiful if they just killed themselves in the right way all failed. But the glamorization of suicide is an incredibly dangerous thing. And in the same way, the glamorization of morbid obesity is a horrible thing. And there's nothing beautiful about it. The only beautiful thing about it would be a diet, and I don't see that coming anytime soon because we're supposed to embrace Lizzo as beautiful even though she is not, even though her body is sick and her joints will tell her about it if they haven't already begun to. 
See, sickness is not beauty, and no matter how you try to convince yourself and twist and contort and bend the truth to, to fit your narrative, it's just not going to do it very well. Truth is truth, and there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. There is just the truth, and morbid obesity isn't beautiful. And frolicking around to flaunt your morbid obesity is definitely not beautiful. And I want to read this article for you just a little bit, because not only is every time we bring up Lizzo an opportunity to discuss beauty and what it really is, but also within the context of this article is something very fascinating, because we're starting to use words like appropriation and cancel culture all the time that are relatively new, and God, I wish we would stop. Um, So she's going to illustrate that for us in this article. So it says... Lizzo is sharing her thoughts on cancel culture in which a person faces negative consequences for statements or actions that are perceived as harmful. In a tweet posted on Sunday, the Grammy winner argued that the practice of canceling others has become trendy, misused, and misdirected, overshadowing more serious issues and real outrage in the process. Now, let me just stop right there and just say, for sure, the outrage mob, the cancel culture mob, is definitely not concerned with truth and not concerned with real issues. But I'll bet you Lizzo isn't either, so let's keep reading. She said in her tweet, this may be a random time to say this, but it's on my heart. Cancel culture is appropriation. Lizzo wrote on her Twitter account, there was real outrage from truly marginalized people, and now it's become trendy, misused, and misdirected. The About Damn Time singer continued sharing that she hopes we can phase out of this and focus our outrage on real problems. While she didn't elaborate on the topic, Lizzo received a flurry of replies from fans who lauded her take. So while I am no prophet, I can almost assure you that Lizzo does not mean to cancel cancel culture, although that would be a noble effort. What she means to do is to try to redirect people on Twitter, the repository of all intelligence in our society today, uh, to redirect them to outrage and to cancel culture that, um, that she says is permissible. Of course, if we were to listen to her, then I'm sure we would have to cancel fat shaming. And we would have to cancel New Year's resolutions because they're oppressive and they're neo-colonialistic. I'm sure we'd have to cancel a multitude of other things. Perhaps we'd have to cancel the words boy and girl, man and woman. Who knows? But I can guarantee you this. Anybody that uses the word appropriation is never going to follow that up with anything intelligent. And here's the point. We used to value art and beauty because it was from a source of deep wisdom, and it illustrated deep truths to to us that brought us together. But in the present, beauty and art is becoming less and less artful and less beautiful because it doesn't want to focus on universal truths, on overarching meta-narratives that are important to all of us. Rather, we're being forced to find important what Lizzo finds important. And with any luck, we will do everything within our power to flee that kind of beauty before it's too late. And speaking of too late, it's not too late to change this, but according to the Christian Post, a third of Americans have stopped going to church. Now, I don't want to go through the whole article here. It's linked down below in the in the description of this podcast. But what I will do is I will read one little excerpt to show you that that I, people who identify as Christians has not changed, but the people who call themselves Christians going to church has changed and will try to unearth why. So the article says this. 
Much of the decline in attendance was due to people completely abstaining from worship, the survey says. National religious identity among American adults stayed largely consistent during the pandemic, with minimal evidence of religious switching during this period, the study adds. While 19% of adults changed their religious identification during the pandemic, including 6% who were unaffiliated pre-pandemic but reported a religious identity in the spring of 2022, 5% who reported a religion pre-pandemic were unaffiliated in the spring of 2022. In last November, LiveWay Research released the results of a phone survey of 1,000 Protestant pastors conducted from September 6th through September 30th, 2022, which showed while churches were resuming the majority of their in-person services, on average attendance at their churches in August 2022 was 85% of their Sunday attendance levels in January 2020. So if 85% of the vast majority of churches or more are, have returned, where did that other 15% go? Well, I can only imagine that that 15% were sent a very loud and clear message by many pastors during the pandemic, and that is this, is that we are willing to press pause because of the government, that we are willing to let the government encroach upon us so much that we will do what they say. Now, early on in the pandemic, totally get it. Most pastors wanted to be compassionate, wanted to take care, and they didn't know. But also, not so much beyond early on in the pandemic, it was very clear that the government was going to open up liquor stores, but they were not going to open up or or allow uh, Christian churches to open up. That, especially in places like California, you would have heavy restrictions that made sure that you didn't do any of the things that you typically do in a church service. Churches and pastors were micromanaged by Gavin Newsom, uh, which is one of the reasons that he was recalled. Now, unfortunately, that effort was thwarted by a bunch of people who will vote blue even if their house is on fire and was lit on fire by the person that they're voting for. Um, It still doesn't deny the fact that part of the blame is not to people like Gavin Newsom and, uh, and Mayor Garcetti. It's, it's to people like those who were in pulpits, who not only allowed the government to tell them what to do, but allowed fear to, to dictate a message to, to their congregation far and wide. And here's the message we sent. We sent the message that church is unessential. That not only do we agree with the government, but even when we are allowed to have in-person services, we are going to bend over backwards to make sure that you... Are catered to. Now, I don't want to overthink here because that's typically not my problem, uh, and I suffer from other issues. But overthinking not one of them. But not only is it communicating that church isn't essential, but it's also communicating something vitally important: that the church is beholden to an entity other than the truth; that the church holds Scripture in such low regard that the assembling of ourselves. Um, and making sure that that is common is, is not as important as making sure that you feel safe. Is it possible that the seeker-sensitive movement, that the pop culture, Christian movement of the present is more man-centered than we ever imagined and COVID revealed that to us? If that's true, the churches who were quick to repent from that were the ones that were able to gather people quicker than the ones who are now hemorrhaging members. So I think it's actually a good thing in a way that, that this is happening to the church because it's a reminder to us that if we don't get back to the truth, we have nothing to bring people to. 
If we don't get back to the truth, why should they come in the first place? If we're willing to communicate to them that the truth is so incidental to what we do on a regular basis that we will make sure you're comfortable and the truth can come second, then, then ultimately, whether we agree with this or not, you are communicating to a large group of people, we are not necessary. And by the way, this is important more and more as our society careens off of the edge like Thelma and Louise going closer and closer to our death. There are going to be people who are hungry for, for, for the kind of things that the church has to offer as long as we are offering it. There are going to be people who are craving an institution who will tell them the truth and not just pander and not just cater to their every whim. They get that enough in society. They don't need a pastor who is welcoming and affirming. They need a pastor who will tell them the truth. And as the progressive movement continues to chew people up and spit them out, those people are going to start wandering our culture looking for an oasis in the midst of all of the dumpster fires all around and I hope that they can find that in the church. But if we don't get back our Reformation spirit, our desire to put the truth above all else, even our own safety, people will find it easier and easier not to return to church. And if we don't find that same courage, we'll find that the government finds it easier and easier to push us around, as we'll see in our final story. Because according to the Christian Post, a Catholic hospital can't refuse to remove the uterus of a trans-identified patient, a judge ruled. A federal court ruled the University of Maryland St. Joseph Medical Center broke the law by refusing to remove the uterus of a trans-identified patient due to the religious beliefs of the institution, which is committed to Catholic principles while also being a part of the public medical system. So let me just get this straight. They've made it almost impossible to survive because of the exorbitant rates that Big Pharma is charging and that the government has worked out with Big Pharma. They made it almost impossible to exist as a medical institution outside of the U.S. medical system. And then, by being a part of that U.S. medical system, the government can then therefore demand that you remove the uterus from a perfectly healthy woman because she tells you she's a man. So that's where we're at as a society today. Now, this is not a person who needed a hysterectomy. This is not a person who had some type of cancerous tumor or some issue that necessitated this surgery. This is a person who had some type of gender dysphoric or social contagion affecting their brain, making them think that they are a man and wanted this Catholic hospital to remove their uterus, her uterus. So there's no mistake. Now, taking a step back from this story, we were reliably informed, especially with the Respect for Marriage Act, that this is just about consenting adults what they want to, doing what they want to do in their own homes and being able to marry each other and have that kind of special tax privileges that really should only come to married couples because they're the ones who are procreating and creating more children and uh, the ones who are actually feeding into the economy by creating more children. So those tax breaks and those kind of uh, benefits that came to married couples for creating children, we just want those even though we can't create children. That's what we were told that this was all about, the Respect for Marriage Act and, and the ability for um, homosexual people to marry who they want to marry. This is just a freedom of conscience issue, and hey, this is America after all. This, is, has, this has nothing to do with us shoving our left-wing gender ideology down your throat, except when it comes to the fact that they have been doing this constantly since we've been having this debate. 
this slippery slope is obvious. And so, as we can see in cases like the Colorado Cake Baker, and yet again in this Catholic hospital, those who are committed to the progressive agenda, the postmodern ideology, don't really just want to kind of do their own thing. They don't really just want to live and let live. They don't want to you do you and, and, and I'll do me. Because here's what they want to do. They want to force you to violate your constitutional rights and to violate your conscience. That's what they're really after at the end of the day. These people are hell-bent on a cultural agenda that will force you to do what you want. So whatever happened to freedom, not only the freedom to be able to conscientiously object, which I hope this hospital does anyway, regardless of the consequences, but to the freedom to association, which this is a problem too, right? As an American, you should be able to associate with whoever you want to associate with without the government telling you you can't do that. This is not really even a libertarian argument. This is a constitutional argument because libertarians kind of get their panties in a bunch whenever the government's involved. But they're kind of hypocrites in this way. Libertarians want the government involved, unless you're an anarchist, which very few people are, because when you call 911, you want the police to answer, right? So very few people are truly libertarian in the sense that they want to be totally free, <clears throat> free from the government. And in the same way, we, we don't want to be totally free from the government, but we don't want the government shoving their left-wing gender ideology down the throats of a Catholic hospital. But nonetheless, it may be incumbent upon this hospital to do exactly that and just to say, damn the U.S. medical system, we will do as we wish and as we please. I don't know the implications of that, but I do know the implications of a society that consistently lets the government tell them what to do when it concerns health. But seeing this in all the stories that we've covered today is enough to make you wish that we lived in a time where before we started talking about gender-affirming care, before we told people that all of their issues could be solved with a surgeon's knife. And so it leaves us asking the question, what in the world is going on? Why is all of this happening and what can we do about it? See, I think this is why. Christianity is the greatest threat against totalitarianism, and the totalitarians of our age know it, so they try to remove it as much as possible so that you'll be way more susceptible to their lies. And that's the point. They want to make us so desperate that we will look to them for the solution. Now, most scholars believe this is exactly what happened with Hitler in Germany, that the crushing weight of World War I left Germans so desperate for answers, so desperate that they would even look to a madman. So tell me that's not the pres prescription for the modern progressive that, that, that thinks a man can get pregnant. See, Marx said this. He said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. In other words, if you get rid of religion, you'll make people truly happy, but religion will never make them happy. So let me ask you a question for those of you who have abided by this prescription. How you doing? How has the removal of religion, the removal of Christianity, the removal of belief in God actually helped you? Suicide rates are soaring. And parentless, single-parent homes are arising in number. People are looking for gender-affirming butcher shops in order to pursue the illusion of happiness that will never come with a surgeon's knife. And fear-mongering climatologists are convinced that the best way 
to issue forth their agenda to fragilely-minded people is to scare the daylights out of them by telling them, in five years, the world will be destroyed simply because of cow farts. The reason society is in decline is that we are constantly rejecting truth. We are constantly rejecting the Bible and the God who created it. The more we move away from it, the worse things will get. So if religion is the opium of the people, boy, we sure could use another hit. I'm, I'm encouraging each and every one of you to remember times gone by and to at least challenge yourself with this truth, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian. Were things better in the past than they are now, at least just in terms of the way in which we treated each other, the way in which culture is, and the way in which our society, the direction it was headed. If you find that we're in societal decline, it's time we started being really super honest with ourselves. It's time we started realizing that there really is only one cure, and it's a return. A return to the God who made us and the God who can change us so that we don't continue to do the false definition of insanity do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So seek him while you still can and while we still have the opportunity. And though things weren't perfect in 2004, maybe there's some things back there that we could bring into the present. Whatever those things are, I wish you the best as you find them and as you like, share, and subscribe. Oh, and most important, as you go with God. Thanks for watching.